downhill run. But I trust that you have enjoyed reading Hebrews. I trust you've enjoyed taking Hebrews in and more importantly, uh, looking for the application to your own life. Amen? Um, so we just uh, look forward to today. The ongoing task of Hebrews is to consider Jesus above all else. In other words, we choose Jesus, but we need to keep choosing Jesus. In every moment, in every life moment, we need to keep choosing Him. We need to uh, unpack this a little bit and understand the argument by which the writer of Hebrews is making in this chapter. And so I just want to outline to you a few brief things uh, and then we'll get into some application. The, the first thing I want to bring to your attention is this particular phrase, consider, from verse 4. Today I need you to stay with me. Do not drop off to sleep. I'm happy to put the aircons on 16 degrees if it helps. I'm happy to serve peanuts or whatever it takes. But the reason why I say that is, is because of the emphasis of the writer here. The writer is pleading with the people, consider. This is a very strong word. This is like, what I'm about to say, I really need you to take it in. I really need you to wrestle with it. Don't just allow it to, to slip past you, but really consider it and take it on board. Consider it. So let's consider this argument that we just read from the chapter. There's a baseline. In the Jewish mindset, in the Hebrew mindset, there was a very strong cultural baseline, and that was this, that Israel was God's chosen people, and the tribe of Levi were the, was the chosen priesthood. The priesthood's role was to be an intermediary between a holy God and a chosen people. And, and this was instituted... Uh, through Moses and the law. And this, this is the starting point. This is, where, this is where the argument begins because for the Hebrews, they were in this space. They wanted to go back to what they knew as Jews. The whole Jesus idea wasn't working out as planned. Have you ever, as a Christian, experienced where things just don't work out as you thought they would? And so these people are facing persecution. They were yearning to go back to a time where as Jews, they coexisted with Roman rule. That there was enough of good there for them to go, this is easy, this is peaceful, we're happy with this. This whole Jesus thing, we are under pressure now, we're being persecuted. Life was much easier back then. So this is, this is the baseline for the argument. This is the baseline for the, for the text. But now consider the argument. I want you to see how cleverly the writer begins to unpack this and show that Jesus is greater. The first thing that the writer says is Abraham. As soon as I say Abraham, we think of Genesis 12. We think of a man who heard from God and left his hometown to a land God would show him. What an act of faith. This was well before Google Maps. And so he... he he just left. He, I, I wished, as we heard at communion time, I wished I could hear the voice of the Lord and just obey. How much better would life be if we just did that? Abraham left. And what's important about Abraham is that 
From Abraham came the nation of Israel and the tribes. Abraham was before Moses and the law. So it's a bit like having a 12-man tent. And inside that tent, you've got the tribes of Israel. Everyone fits inside that tent. Abraham is kind of the tent that sits over all of that. So Abram was, was, uh, was, was kind of greater in that sense. He was kind of somewhat more important. In other words, there was a, a bit of a deference that should have gone towards Abram. And that's really important because of what happens next. What happens next is Abraham has this interaction with Melchizedek. And this is where the argument really starts to take shape. Before the meeting with Melchizedek, there's a very important story. And I think we don't pay enough attention to this story. Abram was on a rescue mission immediately before he met Melchizedek. The rescue mission was to go and rescue Lot. Lot had been taken by kings and these kings had, had uh, uh, sacked a, a, a range of cities and they'd taken you know, the booty and the gold and they'd taken the people but they also took Lot. Abraham heard about this and immediately he launched a rescue mission. I want you to remember that. He launched a rescue mission. He goes on a rescue mission. He takes other people with him. He wins this battle, incredible battle. I mean, you're talking about a stranger in a land with no organised army, no sniper kits, no infrared stuff, no satellite technology. He just went with the trained men of his household and allies and won this battle. Brought back Lot. And then there's this interaction with Melchizedek. It was an act of faith to go on that rescue mission. He had no idea what he was going to run into. It was an act of faith. And it's from the act of faith, the success of that faith, the success of that step, the success of that work, that Melchizedek comes to meet Abram. It's not the other way around. Melchizedek is the one that comes to meet Abram. He leaves his city, he goes into the valley to meet Abram. In Genesis chapter 14, this is recorded. And straight away, Abram knows that this is a man who worships the same God that Abram heard to leave his home. It's very clear to Abraham. Abraham knows it. He just knows it that this is not just a king, but it's a priest of the Most High God. The same God that said, go to a land I will show you. So there's this interaction that begins to take place. And as this interaction takes place, because the priesthood and the, the, the kingship are kind of together, there's something that all automatically becomes greater about this Melchizedek compared to Israel. You see, in Israel, the priests and the kings were not one tribe, were not one person. In Israel, the Levites were the priestly group. And in Israel, the tribe of Judah produced the kings. So straight away, Melchizedek is somebody who is a priest of the Most High God before any priesthood existed predates Levi, but he's also a king. And importantly, he's not just any king, he's the king of peace and the king of justice. Now, as soon as the Hebrews heard this phrasing, they would have been absolutely interested in someone who's the king of peace and the king of justice. Because for the Hebrew people, there was no peace. For, for, the, for these Hebrew people, there was a complete lack of justice. 
They were not being treated fairly in the marketplace. They were being treated poorly in the legal system. They were being shunned and pushed to one side. They had no justice. They had no justice. They had no peace. And so they yearn for this justice and they yearn for this peace. And so as the writer of Hebrews talks about Melchizedek, they remember about this, this high priest of God, this, this king, who was also a king of justice and a king of peace. Can you see where the argument's beginning to go? But that's not all. There's this further interaction between Abraham and Melchizedek and it's important to understand that the Jewish mindset was very clear about the role that they played with giving tithes. They tithed according to the law to the, to the tribe of Levi and, and, and to God. They gave money. This is not a message today about money. Amen? Phew, amen. Yet, it's very important to see the linkage here. So, the priest, the, the, the Levi priest, they would receive the tithe and their role was to bless the people. But what happened before the Levi priests were uh, uh, doing this was Abram. Abram went to Melchizedek. Melchizedek came to Abram. He was the initiator. He was the first mover. And Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And what was Abram's response? Was to give a tithe of everything. This was before the word tithe was even mentioned ever. Well before. And so there's this greater than factor. We have got the greater than factor of this, of this justice and peace king, of this king and high priest in one person. We've got this greater than factor of, of Abram, the great patriarch upon which everything came. The promises of God were given to Abraham and from him this nation came. And, and, so, Mel, and so because Abraham received the blessing, the writer says, well, whoever gave the blessing has got to be greater. But that's not all. Psalm 110. If, you, if you're looking for some reading, please read Psalm 110. This is like the king hit moment of the argument. Psalm 110 begins to pick up a messianic connotation of Jesus, written by David. It's kind of the royal priestly psalm. And the Jewish people would have known this psalm absolutely clearly. And so then what the writer does is the writer says, you know what, the Levi priests, they die. But this Melchizedek, he doesn't die. And he used the Psalm 110 to back up his claim. But not only that, the genealogy of this particular Melchizedek is not recorded anywhere. And there's no further talking of what happens to him afterwards. It's almost like in Genesis chapter 14, it's left there as, as evidence of this person is eternal. There is something special about Melchizedek. So already you've got an additional greater than at play here. You've got Melchizedek who is, has this eternal factor around him and, and you've got the priests who don't. Who's greater? One who lives forever or those who die? If I'm a Jewish person here hearing the Jewish Scriptures being spoken to me in a way that out-argues me and says that Jesus is greater, I really have to admit checkmate. The only other option is for me to harden my heart to the point where I don't want to hear the argument any further. Have you ever come across people like that? Have you ever engaged with people? Have you ever spoken to people about Jesus and they just don't want to hear the argument anymore? You're absolutely sure there's something going on there, but 
They cannot withstand the discussion any further. That's the only get-out-of-jail card for them now, to avoid the argument in the first place. And so, because Melchizedek has this eternal factor about him, we know that Jesus is born of the tribe of Judah. Judah is the kingly line. And we know that Melchizedek is king and priest. And so, Jesus becomes this kind of type of Melchizedek. Jesus is, is, is kind of tied into the priesthood of Melchizedek, this eternal priesthood. Scholars debate forever that Melchizedek was a type of Christ. Some say that it was Christ, it predates Jesus is greater than the priestly line for the Hebrews. Greater. Greater. But you know the thing for me that really just wins it over, that just ends the argument? Is if you look in Genesis chapter 14, what does Melchizedek bring to Abram? You're not going to believe it. He brings bread and wine. I mean, you'd almost think the Bible was engineered. You, you would almost think that it was written with some intention, with some design. You'd almost think that, that something was at play here so early back on and, and things have just played out so that we might glorify God. The bread and the wine, of course, remind us of what we celebrated today. Reminds us of Jesus and His sacrifice. As Warwick shared... This institution of Christ was his death and resurrection. And that is what Melchizedek brings to Abram. Who's greater? Who's greater? The problem for the Hebrews was that they had to surrender their understanding. They had to surrender their culture. They had to surrender what they believed. They had to surrender their fears and their worries and their anxieties to accept Christ. Is it any different for us today? Is it any different for us? We have to make choices every day with our fears, with our worries, with our anxieties. We have to make those same choices that Jesus is greater in each of them. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. I, I think it becomes far easier for us to unpack the application of this particular chapter of Hebrews by looking at where it came from, which is Genesis 12 and 14. In, in, when, they, when scholars examine the Bible, they use a, a term called first mention, principles of first mention. It's the context upon which something was very first mentioned in Scripture. And so Genesis 12 and 14 have this aspect of first mention about Melchizedek, this first mention of, of, of this, this lineage of Christ, this king priest. But what's absolutely critical is the story that's within Genesis 12 and 14. You see, what Abram did was he had the promise of God in Genesis 12. But in Genesis 14, he entered into the mission of God, which was rescue. That is absolutely key. You see, if you stay with the priesthood, if you stay with the Jewish culture and Jewish mindset and Judaism, there is no rescue in that. But if you move into Christ, if you move into His eternal world, if you move into serving Him and following Him, becoming disciples, rescue is everything. Rescue is everything. We are called to rescue. We are called to rescue. And beyond that, Abram makes choice after choice after choice of faith and of rescue. In fact, in Genesis 14, there's this moment where the king, king of Sodom, 
comes to Abram and says, you know what, Abram, you've done a great job. Uh, keep all of the spoils of war, keep all the cash, keep all the gold, keep all the jewellery, I'll just take the people back. And Abram says, you know what, I'm so committed to Jesus. I know what you're doing here, I know you want to have a claim to me, it's not going to happen. I am so, I am so, I am standing on such solid ground, I have the promise of God, I've been blessed by Him, I don't need anything from you. I don't need a thing from you. I know you're trying to buy me and I'm not going to have a bar of it because my God has promised me, my God has blessed me and I don't need anything more. What a way to live. Can you imagine living like that? Can you imagine living in such a way where you know you need nothing because God has promised you everything and God has blessed you with everything, so what more is there? That's a pretty big argument. If you want to be encouraged in this area, can I just suggest that you go on our website, find a message that Mavis preached. You will just be inspired about the faith. You'll be inspired about trusting in the promises of God. You'll be inspired about the journey of faith and relying on Him. It was a great message of encouragement. I just encourage you to listen to it again. I want to just finish before... We move on with a, a sort of a phrase. It's not the church that has a rescue mission. Rather, God's rescue mission has a church. God's rescue mission has us. You see, we've received the promise. We've received the promise. But as part of receiving the promise, it requires faith action. It requires work. I believe with all my heart that faith without works is dead. We are not talking about earning salvation. We are talking about the step that Abram took when he went to rescue Lot. That's what we're talking about. Jesus came to rescue us. Jesus gave his life to rescue us. Jesus Jesus came into our world. He became flesh and blood. He gave up his divinity so that he could be like us, be with us. Jesus was on a rescue mission of eternal significance. He came so that we might have life with him. And now he invites us into the rescue mission. He invites us to carry it on. He invites us to do our bit. And whatever that bit is for you, God has trusted that to you today. I want to say to you today and encourage you today that God knows that you can do it. God has given you Jesus. There is nothing more that you need. You have the promise. You have his blessing. So what rescue are you a part of? Just look around where you are right now, in the space that you're in, in the workplace, wherever you're studying, in your family situation, with the people you're rubbing shoulders with, God has placed you there so that you can be one of his rescuers. That is our mission It's God's mission that he's invited us to participate in and to go on a rescue, to not allow ourselves to come bogged down with an alternative Christian point of view, something like what the writer of Hebrews was dealing with, because that goes nowhere. Who wants to be a part of that? Psalm 110. I encourage you to read it and take it to your heart. But I've said enough, I'm going to invite my mum to come and share. Um, I like this picture of my mum. She's got a hand on her hip 
and she's made all us boys carry something. And I can't really remember what we were carrying, but we were asked to do something. And my mum's, you know, if I'm around long enough, she'll ask me to do something. And I feel like I've carried lots of things for her. But the most important thing I reckon I carry is I carry a heart. So it's my great pleasure to ask my mum to come and share a testimony about the reality of what Hebrews 7 is on about. The choice we have to make every day for Jesus. Thanks, Mum.